Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome back to the Daily Daily Evolver. It's Tuesday, October 17th, 2017. And um, today I wanted to take a look at the really tragic situation that is going on in uh, Myanmar with the violence against an ethnic minority, the Rohingyas, which is a Muslim minority in a, uh, I think, 80% majority Buddhist nation. And this violence, this ethnic cleansing is being stoked by militant Buddhist teachers. And that is uh, almost an oxymoron here in Boulder, Colorado, which is one of the centers of the American Buddhist movement. And, um, you know, it's perplexing in light of the understanding we have of, have of Buddhism is that it is a religion of peace and compassion. So let's see if we can't shed some integral light. Uh, as I said, the Rohingyas are a minority, m Muslim, and they have been historically persecuted by the Buddhist majority in the country. They supported the British in World War II, the British colonialists, and the Buddhists supported the Imperial Japanese. And so that really sort of exacerbated and, and, and brought into focus the differences, political differences between the two groups. And it escalated, uh, they lost their citizenship, and um, there's uh, about, I guess, a million of them. And they have been, uh, about half of them, have been driven out of the country into Bangladesh. And the leader of the opposition, who really stoked the fires of this, is a Buddhist monk called Ashin Waratu, who a couple years ago spread rumors of a rape and it's it's interesting. Rapes. Uh, it was a rape of a Buddhist woman by a Muslim man. That's an oft-told story for getting people uh, all worked up, and it did. And it started riots, and the riots have left uh, has have led uh, a couple years later to uh, where um, his wish that the mad dog Rohingyas would be removed from the country is coming true in real time. Hundreds have died, and. You know, it's a textbook ethnic cleansing. The UN have, has declared it such, the ethnic cleansing as being defined as the purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violence or terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from a certain geographical area. So, again... Um, you know, we don't think of Buddhism as being violent, and yet they're doing, you know, this the cleansing, and they're also doing it in a very brutal way. I mean, there's stories of babies being killed, and uh, there's absolute evidence of villages being burned. And so it, it begs the question of how does a religion go violent? And, you know, what can integral theory bring to this? Because it's it's a big question geopolitically in the world where we have, you know, so much of the hot wars uh, on the planet are being fought in the name of Islam. And why is that? Why is the Middle East and, and, and the Muslims in Africa, uh, you know, why are they so violent? And this is where developmental theory and integral theory really comes in handy because 
we see that every religion is practiced very differently at the different levels of development of the people doing the practicing. And that development trumps doctrine. And I do want to make sure that we continue to use that word in its original meaning. Development trumps doctrine. And so there's a stage in the world that is online today that is, it's actually been online, online a long time, but it's still online. It's a trailing edge of evolving humanity. And it's particularly unholy. It's, it's the holy, it's actually, they call themselves the holy warriors, and jihadists. Uh, and of course, holy war is a part of every religion at this stage where the people have sort of the heart of a warrior. Uh, and, and, and warriors are, if they're, if they're not fighting, they're not feeling like they're alive. They're not feeling like they're being responsible to their people. They are built to fight. Uh, today is a good day to die. This world is not my home. That's sort of the you know, heart and belly of the warrior. And then they're also holy. And they are at the, uh, they have one foot in traditionalism where they have uh, gotten the, the God download, or in the case of Buddhism, the, the, the download of nirvana or a pure land. And pure land is being evoked by the Buddhists in Myanmar, that they, they, they want to get these unclean people out of here. And that's, of course, you know, what holy warriors have been doing for uh, millennia, literally. And all religions go through this stage of development, this holy, traditional warrior, red warrior stage. And for Christianity, of course, it happened hundreds of years ago, uh, where we had in the Middle Ages just, you know, endless religious wars, and uh, including the uh, Crusades, uh, you know, the soldiers... And of course, there's plenty of doctrine in the Bible, uh, to, you know, starting with Psalms, 170, Psalms 137, verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your children and dashes them against the rocks. You know, there's plenty of holy warrior language, particularly in the Old Testament. And of course, Christianity is guilty of atrocities of all kinds, uh, the Spanish Inquisition being the most, um, you know, uh, florid. But, you know, we were burning witches right up into the end of the 17th century. And, and of course, Muslims also involved in the Crusades, very warlike, still are. You know, the question is, why is Christianity moved forward into modernity and post-modernity? And the Muslims, particularly in the Middle East, seem to be arrested at this, you know, red amber stage of development, and that's an interesting question and one for another time. But, um, but of course, it happens with Buddhism too, and we have the, you know, sort of strange episode of the militant Zen monks in Japan in World War II. Uh, and the book Zen at War is fascinating. It tells the story of the rise of militant, romantic militant Buddhism in Japan. It started at the end of the 1800s when J Japan reopened. And it led for calls of 
what they called a holy war. And that was World War II for them. And we see, I remember when I was at Naropa, I, uh, I, I did a master's program there. Uh, Naropa is the Buddhist university here in Boulder. And they talked about a raid that went on in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives. And I think this was in the 70s or 80s. It was not that long ago, where one sect of monks raided the living quarters of another sect of monks and murdered them. And, you know, so that stage can exist in every, um, every religion. And it's basically the stage where you're trying to rid the world of the unclean. Uh, and, and you're doing God's work. You are in a titanic, colossal, cosmic battle between good and evil. And if you're not fighting evil, you are not doing your job. Uh, now, of course, what's so sort of interesting and confusing uh, is that these religions all teach peace, too. Um, you know, we hear the Dalai Lama, he says, my religion is peace. And he's right. Uh, the basic teachings of Buddhism are contained. It's, it's like the Buddhist Ten Commandments is the Eightfold Path. And that basically is the, you know, a traditional realization of Buddhism. And the Eightfold Path is designed, as the Ten Commandments are, to civilize people. So you have right intent, right speech, right action, uh, where you want to be moral and ethical and treat people well. And so that's just fundamental to Buddhism. There's no Buddhist that is not familiar with the Eightfold Path. But you can interpret that at a warrior stage of development. And that's what's happening here. Of course, Christianity is replete with uh, Jesus' teachings on peace and turning the other cheek and blessed are the peak peacemakers, the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, Muhammad had inscribed on the hilt of his sword, quote, forgive him who wrongs you, join him who turns you away, do good to him who does evil to you, and speak the truth although it be against yourself. So they're both there. And it's funny, uh, these teachings of peace are so riveting to human beings. And, you know, we recognize these teachings as being, you know, beacons that draw us forward. And they do, really. And they draw us up the spiral, in a way. We keep reinterpreting these teachings as we grow in moral development. And as I've said before, moral development is basically the process of enlarging the circle of people that you think are worthy of moral consideration, people that you think are in versus out. And as we get to modernity, and I'm talking modernity not just in terms of the technical modernity, but in terms of really downloading the modern interiority where you realize that all people are equal, some you know, imperfect realization of that. My people are a little more equal, but all people are equal. And at that stage of the game, and this came online really after World War II, uh, even in Christianity, uh, we have modern religions are pacified at that point. 
Uh, we no longer think that it's our job to fight the devil in hot wars. We reinterpret jihad, even in Islam, as being the, the, the war that we have within ourselves, where we struggle to be pure against the forces of evil or, you know, our own nature. And, you know, that becomes a, 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 an interior war. And that's progress. You know, that's development. And then, of course, by the time we reach post-modernity, uh, progressive uh, green stage of development, uh, religions aren't just pacified. <laughs> they're basically meaningless. You know, if you're not fighting the devil uh, or the unpure in your pure land, why do you need God? And, you know, most postmodern people have concluded that we don't need God, at least not in the way that we did before. And so we have the, um, you know, reality that uh, Western Europe, particularly, is a post-Christian society. There's very few people, small minority of people who still attend church and for whom it's meaningful in that traditional way. And America's not far behind. Uh, we're becoming less and less religious, and every generation is less religious than the one before it, to the point where we have millennials are, I don't know, I think, I'm I don't want to guess here, but I will. That's like 30% if I'm remembering the statistics. Uh, believe in God in a traditional way. So, you know, this, this realization of development really helps us to understand what's going on in a lot of different areas. And, you know, we have the, the, this interesting sort of per, uh, perplexing situation in Myanmar, where the prime minister is Aung San Suu Kyi. And of course, we all remember her as, as a hero of nonviolent resistance. She won the Nobel Peace Prize. She's the prime minister now. Uh, and she became prime minister after a decades-long fight of nonviolence against the military junta. And, you know, she won and got the Nobel Peace Prize. And she has this elegant sort of Buddhist quality about her. But now that she's prime minister, she is uh, being, you know, just condemned and criticized uh, roundly by progressives for not speaking out against the violence and justifying it in strange ways where we have this strange interview where she was reassuring everybody that Half the villages of the Rohingya are still intact. But how about the other half? So, you know, is she playing sort of pragmatic politics in a country that is, you know, a lot of holy warriors and a lot of traditionalists who feel that their religion is better and are very happy to get rid of these other people? Or is there a part of her that's still at that stage where she has that sort of fantasy? And I don't think we know that yet, but it's an interesting sort of thing. And it also helps us um, understand the rise of the right, the alt-right, if you will, or just, you know, the, the, the rightest movements in Europe uh, who think that liberals and progressives have become soft on the virtues of Western civilization and the heritage of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And their explanation for why uh, 
Christianity went through their, you know, reformation in 300 years ago versus Islam now is that Christianity is better. I'm not sure that's true, but, you know, it helps to understand that what's really visceral for these people in the right is not so much the religion of Islam. I mean, they think that it's more violent and they point to all kinds of sources and, and you know, verses and so forth. But it's that they're amber, you know, and even red. And Islam, the, 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 the immigrants still have that dominate, men dominate, women submit thing going on. And in the most extreme cases, they're still into honor killings. And, and that's just, it's a cultural thing. It's a developmental thing more than it is a doctrinal thing. Uh, it helps us understand the this strange situation that many of us witnessed, some of us firsthand, in the progressive spiritual traditions here in the West. And we see this first generation of Buddhist teachers who came to the West, came to America and, and Europe, and many of them, it didn't end well. You know, they they they're, the, the whole guru... A situation of submission where you literally hand your karma over to another person and submit to them uh, led to all sorts of abuses of, you know, the women were abused, alcohol, money. Uh, and, you know, the, the, they, they came from an earlier stage of development into the West and many of them just couldn't handle it. And the whole sort of guru thing that's, you know, where is that today? You know, we had here in Boulder, we had Chogum Trumpa who came over. He was, he left Tibet when he was 15 and went into to the uh, crazy 60s in London and made his way over to America. And um, he was just this crazy, enlightened uh, combination of all of it. And he had a long line of women consorts, uh, many of which to this day still feel that it was a great privilege. Uh, you know, I know some of them. And, you know, we have people in the integral community have, who've worked with gurus. And it's just not so easy as we move into a postmodern, uh, and, and, you know, uh, consciousness. Uh, one of the things that integral theory really helps us to sort out here, too, is the question of, so does that mean that these teachers are less enlightened than we thought? And the answer is no and yes, actually. And, 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 and this is one of the great realizations of Ken Wilber is this idea that enlightenment actually takes place on two uh, uh, axes, the axes of waking up and the axis of growing up. And the axis of waking up is the realization of oneness. It's basically what it is. It's a sort of a meditative realization that of absolute reality, using Buddhist terms, or of the Godhead, to use Christian terms. And that's just this big wow. Okay. And Buddhists from day one have realized that. Christians, mystics from day one have fully realized oneness. So they are fully awakened 
in that sense. Uh, on the other axis of growing up, that's vertical development. That's where we move from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. And that's another axis of development. And on that axis, no, they weren't as developed. They were ethnocentric. And they are ethnocentric in Myanmar. So that um, sort of suggests the practice that we as integralists want to do, is we want to be working on both of those axes ourselves. The waking up, you know, the meditation, the, 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 the state realization that, you know, this world is not my home and today is a good day to die. You know, we still are, you know, we want to feel that there's there's a sort of a eternal uh, uh, infinite nature to us and at the same time we want to be working on expanding these circles so that we can include more in our uh, realization all right so hope that helps a little bit <laughs> and um yeah so corey any thoughts yeah. Uh, first off, amazing episode again, Jeff. That was, um, Thanks, man. was a great breakdown of a very, a very sad situation. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, not to make light of it, but, you know, I don't think any of us who've been swimming in integral waters should be surprised to hear that, hey, Buddhists can be assholes too. <laughs> Some of us know it's firsthand. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, all I have to do is look through my Facebook feed and I could have told you that. But, <laughs> yeah. well, really sort of for Or even look at our own behavior. That's yeah, that's uh, absolutely. In our lives. Asshole every other day. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it also highlights the, the, the big difference between American Buddhism, which was, you know, as you mentioned, was imported into this country at a very particular time. Uh, by some, you know, pretty phenomenal people who were, especially for the time, you know, surfing sort of the cutting edge of conscious evolution in this country. So, you know, those teachings came through with a very particular interpretation to them. Um, yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, a lot of, you know, sort of hardcore Buddhist practitioners will say that there's, you know, not a lot in common between American forms of Buddhism and then, you know, some of the, the, the countries of origin. Right. Um, and then, you know, I, I really enjoyed what you were saying about, you know, when people like to sort of rank these religions, um, you know, oftentimes Buddhism's at the top because it has this perception of being, you know, oh, so peaceful, uh, maybe along with Sikhism. But people forget that these are warrior cultures. You know, I mean, uh, it wasn't too long ago that Tibet was a militaristic feudal society in and of itself. I mean, that's a society that the current Dalai Lama grew up in and came out of. Um, you know, for their own survival. And, um, you know, it, it always interested me how it seems like when we're looking at religions, there's this sort of process that we go through where, you know, the exotic is always more appealing than sort of the common yeah. that we grew up with. And yeah, and, and people often say that, you know, we had graduate school Buddhism was brought over to America to compete with Sunday school Christianity. Yeah, that's that's. That's, that's super well said. And thank yeah. God, for, you know, for Christians like Father Thomas Keating, who are able to sort of split the difference there, you know, I mean, that's where a, a, a centering prayer came from in a lot of ways was this new pressure being put on the Christian traditions to show up and to uh, create the sorts of practices that, um, you know, young people were looking for as they were sort of falling in love with Buddhism. 
Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like, you know, what happens is we grow up with a tradition and all we can see in that tradition is sort of its outer surface exoteric structure. And that leads us to, you know, become sort of interested in the exotic. You know, we have the sense that what we're looking for is over there somewhere. Yeah. So we get into these exotic traditions, which hopefully bring us into relationship with sort of the esoteric, right? The esoteric core of that tradition. And once we discover that, there's sort of a coming home. And then you can look at your own tradition and see how much of the esoteric core of your own tradition, A, has in common with this more exotic tradition, um, but also gets sort of re-enlivened for you in in a lot of ways. So, you know, for me, I, you know, in my 20s and early 30s, I really fell in love with Buddhism, uh, largely through the teachings of Ken, because that, you know, was his predominant tradition. Um, And the result of which was it made me a better Christian in my mid to late 30s and, you know, now my 40s. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an interesting sort of arc that, yep. that we, that we can take. And then the and other, ma- many of us have made this journey ourselves. That, yeah. I mean, we could see it historically, Absolutely. but we have also personally taken this journey. I grew up in Sunday school, Christianity. Yeah. And I rejected it when I was 13, something like that. Once I got scientific enough where it just didn't make sense anymore. And it stayed outside my circle for a long time. That's right. uh, until actually my Buddhist practice, and you described it very well, I, 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 I found my way back to an esoteric Christianity that is, well, now I can't imagine my life without both God and emptiness. And I know they like to fight with each other, <laughs> but I like both of them. It's a, it's a creative tension, I like to think. There, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, that, and that, that does seem to be a common arc from exoteric to exotic to esoteric to a sort of a return of coming home. And then, you know, the other thing, too, when we're, you know, again, ranking religions, um, you know, people often, first off, they tend to characterize Christianity in a very Sunday school way, right? Which is, you know, uh, uh, congratulations, you just won an argument against a fourth grader is, is sort of what that amounts to. And, you know, I think that the thing that that is often missed when we're looking, you know, why is Christianity in today's world so much more peaceful than, you know, Islam? Well, it has very little to do with the structure of the religion itself and so much more to do with the surrounding orange, rational, secular container that these religions now find themselves in, in, you know, in the modern world. Um, there's there's limits on the types of behavior that are allowed. We will never have the equivalent to Sharia law in this country because we have a, a rational constitution. Um, and you know that it, now that said, there are certain Christian forces who you know we might characterize as Yal Qaeda, right? Who are trying to exert you know a very similar sort of um, no. They, they think Sharia is being instituted and. In- well, that's, that's the irony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They see Sharia where there is no Sharia, and they're sort of trying to enact their own. In but a they're still holy warriors. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If, if, if you don't have a devil to fight against, uh, and, you know, the other religion is right handy. They're, they're clearly the other. They have not accepted Jesus as their personal savior. Um, you got to resist that. That's and right. That's, that's, um, that's what's good for them. Absolutely. And, you know, as integralists, we have to recognize that that is, a, you know, a, a view from a particular altitude of development. Yep. And you can't talk people out of, 
what they didn't talk themselves into in the first place. That's right. That's right. Well, and it's interesting how these these different kinds of extremism, amber sort of pathologies, reinforce each other. So yeah. the more you oh, totally these, you know, Sharia over there, the more you're going to try to implement your own version over here. Right. Um, and you know, and obviously that gets that gets really challenging and painful for a lot of people who are growing yeah. up in those traditions and can't, you know, sort of find the crack in the wall to, to, to something on the other side. Right on. Yeah. All right. Well, what fun. Uh, you know, one, one, one final thing is that, uh, that I think is interesting about the story is I think it actually can also help American Buddhists actually get in contact with their own sort of power center. Like it's okay to dip down there when it's appropriate. It's okay to enact your own red when red is the only, you know, responsible reaction to a given situation. You know, I've got a, I've got a, a, a video game sort of clan that I'm part of. We call ourselves Namaste, you know, and we're able to have some fun with that, you know, like let's, let's all be good Buddhists while you know, killing people in, in this video game. And yeah. There's really no, there's, there's no contradiction there. No, no, totally. That's uh, what, what's evolved about that is you're doing it in a video game. That's right. So just, you know, these poor pixels have to die for your <laughs> entertainment, but okay. That's progress. That's progress. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. All Jack, right. for thank episode. you, Corey. Thank you everybody for listening and watching and tuning in and yeah. you know, more to come here Absolutely. on the daily, daily evolver. Daily, daily evolver. And be sure to tune in tomorrow. And uh, also on Thursday, we're going to have a very special guest, our friend Ryan Olke, who's going to join us. Uh, it'll probably be an extended episode. We are going to get into cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and blockchains and all that good stuff. And, you know, hopefully we'll, uh, by the time the conversation is over, we'll have a, a little more understanding of what that world is all about. The evolution of money. The evolution of money fascinating topic i'm looking forward to it me too yeah well thanks jeff right. and thank you everyone for tuning in bye brother bye folks <laughs> <laughs>